FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, here we go. The last Political Rewind at GPB after nine years. Um, We finish up our run here today. The show will uh, go away. I'll be leaving GPB after today's program. Um, So this is a pretty emotional day for me. I am thrilled to say that in addition to the wonderful team that I work with, Chase McGee, Natalie Mendenhall, Victoria Evans-Cash, and Buddha, who have been there and sit behind the glass uh, in the control room. Also here today, my wife, Janice Schaefer, my two children, Emma Pearl Nygut and Bill Nygut III, which just filled me with such joy when I saw them come in. Bill, who's in the coffee business, brought fresh coffee for us. So, you know, I've said on the air a couple times already that the way that many of you out there have responded and said how much political rewind has meant to you after you learned we were being canceled uh, has made me feel like I've been privileged to um, attend my own funeral. That's not how I feel today. Today I feel like I'm the bar mitzvah boy again. This is the day that I get to celebrate. Um, and there's no one I would rather have here to do that with me than um, Kevin Riley, the former uh, now retired editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's been a partner on the show of mine for a long time now. Um, as you may recall, when um, Kevin announced his retirement, I said to him, I really want to do a show about your life and career. And Kevin came in and told some wonderful stories. So Kevin Riley is going to turn the tables today and talk with me about my career. Kevin, as, as I say hello to you, you know, many of us were asked to do videos for um, your big retirement party, your biggest of many retirement parties. And I just want to tell people the very brief one that I recorded, which was that I said, Kevin, there is no one who has given me wiser advice, who makes me laugh harder, or who shares better bourbon than you do. And I am so glad that you're here today. And it's now your show. You're going to talk to me. Yes, you turn the tables, Bill. I can't tell you. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here, be here with your family who I've gotten to know over the years and uh, obviously the folks who uh, run things here on the show. So it's great to be here. And uh, yes, we have shared much bourbon, and I think we're going to be doing more of that a little bit later today, but not <laughs> this morning, not, no, not, not, this not morning. while we're uh, on the air. So uh, I am so looking forward to this conversation and I'm sure your listeners are too. Um, so let, let's jump right into it. Let's, uh, that's a Bill Nygut line. Let's jump right yeah, into it, exactly. right? Uh, one of the things about you that everyone who listens to the show and everyone who knows you understands is you're a Chicagoan. <laughs> and, and I want you to pronounce Chicago the right way, not it's, the way. It's Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. <laughs> not the way I say it. So um, 
So let's 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 use that as a jumping off point. Yeah. Okay, those are your roots that you have held despite these many decades in Atlanta. You have still hold on to that Chicago in you. Well, in the same way that Cleveland is always going to be in your soul. I mean, you've moved on from Cleveland a long time ago, but you still refer to it all the time. Chicago. I mean, I grew up in Skokie, outside of Chicago, large Jewish community. We used to kid about the fact that it was the garden capital of America because there was a Rosenblum on every corner. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I grew up, you know, like many Chicagoans, uh, persevering through unbelievably cold winters, which, by the way, I think is one of the things people always say, God, how could you deal with that? And I've always said, I think that's one of the things that brings people in Chicago together, unites a community. We all struggle through these winters together. We understand the pain and suffering of them. Um, I grew up with the Bears, uh, uh, not the Bulls so much because they weren't much of a team in the early days. Um, but here's what where, but Chicago taught me. It was the place where two things came together for me. Um, theater, because, you know, I was an actor for a while. We're going to get into that, because I think people will be interested to know. Okay. Uh, I, but I will say this. Um, you know that the journalism community in Chicago, the print community, the newspaper business, the Mike Royko's of Chicago, Tom Fitzpatrick, who used to be a famous columnist in Chicago, they really um, helped put journalism in my blood. We all went to the same bar almost every night. O'Rourke's. Now, North Avenue. You've got to have a story from one of those nights in one of those bars that you should tell. <laughs> I mean, think about it before you start to make sure you yeah, can finish no, it on the air. You're right. I, most of those things, you, I will tell you one very funny okay. thing. O'Rourke's was, you know, Chicago has 2 a.m. licenses and 4 a.m. licenses. O'Rourke's was a 2 a.m. bar, and it really was where all the newspaper men and women uh, gathered at night and tra- told stories, yelled at each other, argued. And because it closed at 2, um, there was a Chicago Sun-Times red delivery truck that would pull up in front of O'Rourke's at 2 a.m., and everybody who wanted to go to the 4 a.m. bar about two miles away <laughs> would pile into the back of the delivery truck. And every now and then, reporters would bring celebrities who they'd been interviewing to O'Rourke's. And what I remember with such great fondness, Bella Abzug came to O'Rourke's wearing the funny hats that she used to wear in those days. She was a famous political leader. And seeing Bella Abzug at 2 a.m. get lifted into the Sun-Times delivery truck to continue with us till 4 a.m. at O'Rourke's down the street <laughs> is a great memory. But go ahead. Well, well, but, but as you do your work today, I mean, what is, what is it about Chicago that you brought to this show? That you, you, you... The energy Chicago has? Yeah. That's good and bad. When I first came here as a reporter, I was used to the way Chicago reporters pursued their subjects very aggressively, um, tough-minded, and I learned that for television, it might be quite different in the newspaper business, having sharp elbows as a TV reporter could sometimes work in your favor, but for the most part, it was the wrong way to approach things here. It wasn't the atmosphere. It wasn't the culture here. I learned to back up. And if I was going to ask a tough question, to be careful about how I phrased it. People here were just more, um, uh, uh, they were kinder about each other. And, and I had to back away from some of that aggressiveness. But the energy 
that Chicago gives to people like me has never gone away. Well, that energy, even as you're bouncing around uh, before your microphone, you, you've never <laughs> lost it. So, well, let's go back to this acting thing. Yeah. Because I know from talking to you through the years and, I, you know, the tremendous fan you are of theater yeah. and, you know, all those things, that this acting thing's in your blood, too. Yeah. And that's really where you started. That's what you wanted to do, right? You know, I dropped out of three colleges. I never liked college. And the last place I decided I wanted to go was to a place called the Goodman School of Drama, which was part of the Art Institute of Chicago. It was one of the most prestigious theater schools in the country. I'd never pursued theater. I hadn't done any high school plays um, because the journalism teacher who made me editor-in-chief of the newspaper, just like you were in Cleveland, said to me, if you do anything aside from editing this newspaper, I'm throwing you off the paper. <laughs> so I couldn't audition. But I did audition for the Goodman. And remarkably, they accepted me. I was, what, I mean, there were hundreds of people that applied, and I was one of the people who got in. And I spent about a year there and then decided, again, I didn't want to finish college and went off to New York, where I tried to be an actor. But I really wasn't good enough. And, um, and so it was a dream that I, I loved for a while but gave up and kind of came back to what was the other great love in my life, which was journalism. Mm -hmm. So, so what, do you, what do you carry or keep with you about the acting experience? The drama. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that acting teaches you a lot about compassion, about how you understand yourself and how you look for what is really at the core of other people as you try to create a character, what, what's in their hearts, what's in their souls, what's in their minds. And I hope that it uh, helped me become a, a more empathetic person. Well, I think we'll see that because later on I'm going to get into this tremendous uh, group of people who form the panelists yeah. that come through yeah. the show uh, many of us have become friends and gotten to know yeah. each other as a result of you being at the center of that universe. Okay, so we're in Chicago, and acting, uh, you've gone off to New York. Yeah. Now, did you come back to Chicago? Came back to Chicago, and um, I, I did some writing for the newspapers. Never was on staff, but I freelanced for the Chicago Daily News, uh, Chicago Sun-Times. I then was asked to be the editor-in-chief of a regional magazine, Chicago Land Monthly, which was trying to make a dent on the greatest uh, regional magazine, one of them in the country, Chicago. That wasn't a very winning proposition. And then I ended up uh, in TV news, first as a producer of a show called The Big Story, which was on a tiny little TV Okay, station. I'm going to slow you down, though. Like, So you're wandering about, acting yeah. hasn't worked out, you're freelancing. Yeah. How do you end up getting a producer job? How does that happen? Uh, it, it, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> well, I, luck. If you just want to say luck, all right, <laughs> luck, luck. Um, big story. Five nights a week, live, eight o'clock at night. Host a woman from Iowa named Mary Jane O'Dell, who was a brilliant host, smart, smart person. And every night we'd spend an hour on whatever we thought was the big news story of the day. Remind you of anything? You know? Yeah. Wow. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And, um, and, and that was the beginning of my TV journalism career. We won an Emmy. I was 24 years old. What did you win the Emmy for? Uh, well, Mary Jane won it. Um, but I got part of the credit because I was the guy who helped her get there. Um, it was for best uh, talent on a TV news broadcast, something like that. You know? And then I did a radio show, a daily radio show. 
So I was all over the map in Chicago doing stuff. But then you become an on-air reporter. Now, how did you get, get to that point? Um, I, I think that what I brought to newsrooms in Chicago was that I was a native Chicagoan. I knew the city inside and out. I mean, I could, I knew the streets, I knew the neighborhoods, I knew the leaders, because I'd been there my whole life. And, and so I would walk into a newsroom, and I was a go-to guy who had all of this knowledge. I wasn't very good on the air for, for a while at first, and I didn't know the first thing about TV reporting. Every job I've ever had, I've had to teach myself as I'm doing the job, right? And that was one of them. Um, so I ended up at the ABC-owned station, Eyewitness News. And um, the final story that I was lucky, I loved politics even then, and, and I do have a story about why, but um, the last campaign I got to cover was the election of Harold Washington as mayor of Chicago, the first black mayor of Chicago. And I've told this story before, but it was an extraordinary campaign because, you know, Chicago was a racially divided city. There was a lot of animosity. We would go into neighborhoods in certain parts of the city where people would literally throw rocks and yell horrible things at, at Harold, who was an extraordinary man. And um, at the end of that campaign, I realized I wanted to do political reporting more than anything else. That station had a veteran political correspondent who was always going to get the big stories. And so I went to my agent and I said, where else can I go? I want to pursue political reporting. And I ended up coming to Atlanta to WSB-TV. So is that, you said you had, why political reporting? It was the Washington race or was there something else that happened during that time? No, it, uh, so here's, here's the quick story. Okay. Um, first, when, when I was 13 years old, the Republican National Convention came to Chicago to a place called the International Amphitheater, southwest side of the city, in the middle of Chicago's stockyards. <laughs> so and this is the Republican the, Convention of 19, 1960. Yeah, not the famous 68 no, no, Democratic not 68. Convention. No, no, not This was right. eight years earlier. Yeah. So my friend John Smart and I said, we got to go down and see the parade around. We've got to see the spectacle. And we took the L and we went down to the amphitheater. And I was already hooked on news. My family was a Huntley Brinkley family. And I watched with my dad and mom every night. And we got to the amphitheater and there on the, on the outside of it were the reporters. I watched that Frank McGee, who some people are old enough uh, to remember. There was Frank McGee standing there. Um, we managed to talk our way in I won't bore you with the details. No, we, we have time for details. We got we <laughs> we saw a guy with a big big cowboy hat on who had a fistful of what looked like passes, and we went up and we said to him, "We are such big Republican fans." I was thirteen years. We are we're dyed in the wool Republicans. Any chance you, two of those passes could be ours? And so he gave them to us, and we went up and sat in the gallery. And uh, after we'd been there about 10 minutes, uh, an usher came up and said, let me see your passes, because we looked out of place. He said, these passes are for the TV gallery, a room where they had a big screen TV, and you get there this way. Well, there wasn't a, this was the days before security was incredibly tight. And so instead of leaving and going over to this TV room, we went down to the main floor. And we, somebody came up to us 
and said, how would you like to be in a demonstration on the floor of the convention? And we said, absolutely. <laughs> Handed us big placards. It turned out this was Thursday night. This was the night that Richard Nixon was going to give his acceptance speech. We were ushered out onto the floor of the Republican National Convention, given standards, whatever they said, you know, I like Dick, whatever. And we were in a demonstration right below the podium with, with our signs when Richard Nixon came out to give his acceptance speech. And I knew from that moment, I got to do this for a career. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, a, that's an unbelievable, unbelievable story. It was amazing. Story. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, um, okay. So uh, coming to Atlanta, I mean, there, we have so much to talk about. So before we, we're going to have to take a break. Even I no, know that it, at it, some it, point. It, it, I'll handle the breaks, Kevin. It's still my show until okay. 10 o'clock. Yeah, okay. All right. I don't want to get into any kind of power play here. Yeah. But but I don't want to get in. We'll get into, like, all the incredible things that happened and you covered in Atlanta. But go back to how did you come here? How, I mean, why why Atlanta? Why does a kid from Chicago want to come all the way to Atlanta? What, what are you thinking about at that point? Well, I knew I wanted to cover politics, and I was never going to get the chance to do it as a full-time political reporter in Chicago because of the veteran who, who was always going to beat me on those stories. Um, I had an agent. His name was Bob Barnett. He was one of the biggest agents in business. I was very fortunate that he took me on as a client. He's Rita Braver's husband. Bob used to also be, by the way, he's a Democrat. He was the guy who used to uh, do the Republican candidate in presidential uh, candidate debates uh, when they were practicing them. And uh, Bob knew the news director at WSB-TV, a guy named Rabin Matthews. Uh, Rabin had been Walter Cronkite's chief writer on CBS Evening News and for a variety of reasons ended up uh, in Atlanta. And Bob called him and said, I got a guy you ought to talk to. And they brought me down here. And I spent a weekend with Rabin and um, we made a deal. So did you did you. Why Atlanta? I mean, if you wanted to do well, politics. that's where I was invited to come. Okay. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, all right, <laughs> no, I, no, no, I no. sense this is going to no. be a hot place. And, and, and I've told this story on the air before. When, I was, when it was announced I was coming to Atlanta, my friends in Chicago were like, how can you move to Georgia? How can you go live with all of those racists in Georgia? I said, are you kidding? You people all just watched the same Harold Washington campaign for mayor. Yeah. Racism doesn't have a geographical boundary, people. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's an interesting thing, a Midwesterner coming to, uh, to yeah. Georgia. So um, before we get into all the stories at WSB, talk about that. I mean, talk about how you've become <laughs> the Chicago guy in Atlanta. I know you love this place. I know you met your wife here. I mean, yeah. you've had a life here. But it, it, was it? Was it hard to make that change? Did you find it, or did you fit right in right away? No, I didn't fit in right away. Um, partly, again, because that sharp elbows thing. Where, well, you where, keep saying that. So give me an example of things you did. It, that... it, 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 in Chicago, it wouldn't if, – if, if you're a political leader accused of corruption, and I am you know come up and ambush you on the street and say, Kevin Riley, you're going to be indicted on charges of corruption – for stealing money, for taking bribes, for this and that. That's how I would say it to you. Here, if you were that aggressive with a subject of an interview, um, it, it would put people off because that was just the way it was. You'd have to find a slightly different way to do that sort of thing. But it was also the South. I mean, this was 1983, and Atlanta was a different city then than it is now. It was still Southern, and it 
did take me a while to adjust to an entirely different culture. Okay. All right. Well, listen, I know that you want to be in charge we of the We got breaks. five more minutes. Why, I don't, why do we have to do it right on schedule? Again? All right, fine. We'll take a break. You want to take a yeah, break let's now? Take why a break you, you go ahead. Throw it to the break. Well, we're going to take a break now, and we'll be back. And when we come back, what we're going to talk about is all the really big stories you did in Atlanta and uh, some of the big politicians that you've covered. Whoa. Okay. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to the very last political rewind, at least on GPB uh, radio. Kevin Riley is doing me a great honor of interviewing me for this final show. And Kevin, before I throw it back to you for your questions, I don't want to make—I want to make sure we don't lose time to say this. For me, one of the most important elements of this show, and one of the things that has made this show as smart as I think it's been for nine years, is the informal partnership that we've had with reporters at your place, to have Patricia Murphy, to have Jim Galloway, Tamar Hellerman, uh, Greg Bluestein, Leroy Chapman, now the editor of the AJ, editor-in-chief, have you on the show. And I just want to make sure I say just how much it's meant to me to work with all of you. And you're the reason we've been able to do it, because as the boss, you always said yes to our having you part of every single show. So I just want to make sure I say that before you keep interrogating. Yeah, me. well, well, thank you. And you're kind of throwing me off here. I, I was going to get my sharp elbows out, and now you've got me getting all uh, flustered. But, um, no, we were glad to be part of it, enjoyed being part of it. I know I've talked to each of those folks, and they are uh, saddened by the end of the show and have enjoyed every moment yeah. on the show and being part of that. So let's get to your career in Atlanta. Um, how about I start this way? You've covered a ton of big stories. Yeah. Your favorite or your best scoop or the story you most want to tell about this time in Atlanta. And we'll get to a lot of things, but start there. Well, I mean, starting in 1984, I covered every national political convention all the way through 2000. I didn't, by 2000, I, I left Channel 2, I, I finally got tired of being part of local TV news in 2003. So I literally covered 10 conventions up through the 2000 uh, conventions in uh, L.A. and Philadelphia, which is where the Republicans met that year. So I have been fortunate, and I also was fortunate that I came through WSB. We both know Cox well. You worked for him, so did I, at a time when... WSB and Cox were willing to spend whatever it took to make sure that their, uh, pr provide, their content providers, the newspaper, the TV station, the radio station, would be successful. And so I had enormous free reign to decide where to go, what presidential stories, what stories happening at the White House on Capitol Hill I needed to travel to be part of. Nobody questioned my decision. It was really an extraordinary thing. Um, so I, I think because of that, 
there were any number of in, incredible people that I got to be relatively close to. I mean, I would go out early in a presidential campaign when other reporters weren't traveling, and I'd get on these like eight-seat uh, jets with uh, a Gary Hart, with an Al Gore, with any of these people who were running for office. And that was extraordinary. Um, in 1988, when George H.W. Bush was running for the first time, I spent a lot of time on the plane with with him, with his campaign. And I got to know Jeb and George W. pretty well. For whatever reason, we hit it off and we'd sit in the back of the plane and, and talk to each other. So, I mean, over the years, that's been a really fortunate part of my career. I will tell you one story that you'll appreciate particularly, I think, um, as a journalist. In 1987, when Gary Hart was considered the leading candidate for the Democratic nomination, he made his announcement um, that year in Denver. And then we got on a plane with him, the traveling press. There were probably about 20 of us. And we flew to Amarillo, Texas. And then we're going to go on to Des Moines and end up in Pittsburgh late that night. Um, on the two days before Hart announced, the Washington Post ran a big feature story about Hart, a profile written by a really tough-minded reporter named Lois Romano. And one of the lines in that story was a quote from a friend of Hart's who said, he's got a lock on the nomination if he can keep his pants zipped. And that was an extraordinary quote, because in those days, you know as well as I do, we didn't talk about candidates' personal lives that are peccadilloes. Yeah, now that, that, that nothing, kind of line no nothing. one would pay much attention to, right? Yeah. But we, were all, we get on the plane with Hart, and that's, we're all sitting there talking about lots of things. And he was going to do individual one-on-one -on -one interviews with a number of the really important reporters. I was nobody. I worked for a local TV station. The, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal guys, they looked at me like, who the hell are you? <laughs> but I was there. The first guy that got the one-on-one -on -one interview with him on the plane on the way to Amarillo was a Los Angeles Times reporter who was a real bulldog newspaper guy. And he's up there talking to Hart, and he comes back to us before the plane lands. And he's got, he's all in a lather. He says, I, I, Hart, I asked him about the story. I asked him about keeping his pants zipped. And he blamed it on other campaigns. He made it a story. We can't ignore it now. And you understand that. Yeah, right. If he hadn't said a word, it's Lois Romano, Romano writing a line that maybe no. But suddenly, this becomes the story of the trip. We land in Amarillo, we do the event, we come back to the plane, and Hart realizes he's now got a problem. And as the plane takes off, he comes back, and we literally have a news conference with Hart, all of us standing up, surrounding Hart, and he's saying, no, no, I didn't mean it, and this and that. I actually, WSB has in its archives video, I was the only one who had a cameraman on board that plane, and they'll have that video. Um, of showing that. And, and here's why I, I say it was important for you as a journalist, too. Every reporter on that trip for the important pub, uh, newspapers and TV networks had to file that story. Nobody wanted to. Gary Hart blames the other campaigns for saying he's a philanderer. And one after the other, they all filed. And it was a turning point in how we cover politics. And it hasn't changed since. It's only gotten worse. 
And of course, Hart didn't help himself uh, as 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 the whole thing played no, out. No, of right? course yeah. not. But he was extraordinary. I would have. I, I spent a lot of time traveling with him. He's one of the most exceptional uh, camp candidates I ever got to cover. Okay, so let's take a little diversion here. Okay. Um, I, I mean, what do you think about that as a veteran political reporter? That a guy like let's just say Gary Hart, who, you know, even I can remember was, it's looked presidential, seemed presidential, yeah. seemed ready. And then he's destroyed by uh, personal behavior that decades before would never have made it into uh, the media discussion. Well, I mean, I think, I don't have the answer to that. I just know that it's now fair game. I think a better example of that, that rather than the guy who was cheating on his wife um, in that case, or, or presumably was. He would still deny that he was, although we know about the monkey business boat and all that stuff. Maybe a better story is Joe Biden in his first campaign. I spent a lot of time on the road with Joe Biden when he was a senator and ran in 87, 88. And remember what undid Joe Biden that year? He, too, was considered one of the really strong Democratic candidates. Yeah, and he'd so, been in the Senate at 29. Yeah. Um, he had to drop out. Because he was accused of plagiarizing a few lines from a speech of Neil Kinnock, who'd been a leader in the British Parliament, and because he kind of fudged his law school record. That led to his dropping out. <laughs> Clearly, the standards today have changed when a guy like Donald Trump is able to win the White House after a tape reveals what he says he is a celebrity, is empowered to do when a woman who he finds attractive comes up to him. I think that's really an amazing story from my point of view. Yeah, and you have talked about that kind of thing on the show, the sort <laughs> of thing that you just have to report or talk about even when you don't really want to. Like Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene is kind of your favorite person well, on that. Sure. It's like, should we talk about it or should we ignore it? And, and that sense as a political reporter that you have to do something. Well, you, you, of course, understand this, too. Yeah, right. I mean, it's true that you don't want to give Marjorie Taylor Greene a chance to raise more money uh, by reporting every outrageous thing that she says, and she says plenty of outrageous things, but, but you do, on occasion, have to say, look at this. She says the president of the United States is a communist. She says Jewish space la uh, lasers started the, fire, the um, wildfires in California. You mean that's not true? No. Okay. No, I'm fine, sorry. Fine. And in fact... That's an important thing. If you believe stuff like that, if you believe the 2020 election was stolen by the Democrats here in Georgia, if you're an election denier, if any of those things, there was no place for you ever on political rewind. And we made that clear to our listeners throughout all of that. Yeah, I, I would say I think it's worth a pause here uh, to, to emphasize that point. It was a brave stance. It was what separated, I think, Political Rewind from a lot of other things people can either listen to or watch. And, But I, I have the sense that for you, it was not a hard decision. No, I mean, it was simple. If, if, if you want to come on, on Political Rewind as a fake elector and say, oh, well, I was really only there saving a place for Donald Trump just in case uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, decided not to certify... There's no place for you on the show. You're you're a liar. <laughs> yeah. Well, bravo. I mean, I I uh, I think I speak for many listeners that I've certainly uh, seen on social media and heard from that uh, who admire you for taking that stance. So, so okay. One well, other quick story about uh, my career here, just in TV. Um, 
1992, H.W.'s re-election campaign, I feel very proud of the fact that I was able to get, first of all, uh, we were the first local TV station to get a presidential, the nominee of his party, or the guy who was about going to be nominated when the convention was held, um, Bill Clinton, Governor Clinton, came to the WSB TV studios, and I did a one-hour town meeting with him. Bush was, of course, already president. And it was because of you and your relentless mm. presence on the trail. It's because, yes, because WSB turned me loose to travel constantly, and they all got to know me. And so the Clinton campaign said, this is a guy we need to deal with. We'd like to win Georgia, um, which he did, of course, in 92. Clinton came. We did an hour town meeting. But then my job was, I know he's the president of the United States, but we got to have we, President Bush can't not come here. And they kept saying, the campaign said, you're crazy. He's president of the United States. He doesn't do local TV. In October, they called and said, yeah, we think we're going to do local TV. And I got the president of the United States to come to WSB, and we did an hour with him. I'm very proud of that. Yeah, not many not many of us in this business who work in, in local news ever get to interview a president. We might get to throw yeah. a question at him or something, yeah. but not not like yeah. that. Yeah, So, so. That's, a, that's a big... All right, I I want to get to your favorite Georgia politicians or the most interesting politicians because you've covered all these governors and all that. But talk about the Democratic Convention of 88 uh, coming to Atlanta. Wasn't that one of your big scoops when you— Yeah, yes. Um, I I had been turned loose. I went to my news director at the time, a guy named David Lipoff, in like 86, and I said— Hey, I think, you know, we're competing for both the Democratic and Republican conventions in 88. Why don't you turn me loose to follow what they call the site selection committees to a number of cities that are also in competition to get to know the people who are on the committees and, um, you know, see what we can get out of it. The Republicans decided to go to Houston fairly early on. No, I'm sorry, to, to New Orleans very early on. And but I was still following the Democrats. I was back in Atlanta, and Lipoff calls me into his office, and he says, I'm taking you off this story. I said, why? He said, because ABC News is telling us it's a done deal. They got a source. The Democrats are going to Houston. And I said, David, they're not going to Houston. I'm telling you right now, I don't know if they're coming to Atlanta for sure, but they're not going to Houston. Well, he said, all right. Well, I was right. They came to Atlanta. ABC News was wrong. And from that moment on, I was all over the country before the 88 convention. Okay, so this national politics, which are, makes for great stories and amazing performance and opportunity on your part. But, all right, you've covered all, all of these Georgia governors. And yeah. Who was your favorite? Roy Barnes and, and Zell Miller. And why? I mean, well, Zell Miller was just, you know, I wish you'd been here for him because he was just an incredible character, a mountain man from up there in Young Harris. He was spiky. He was gritty. He had a temper. Um, but he was just, but inside, but he was also the easiest to cry of anybody in he office. He cried? Really? Oh, my God. Zell Bill Miller. Nygut makes people cry. No, 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 not Bill Nygut. <laughs> Zell Miller would cry at the drop of a hat because he was really such a warm and emotional guy inside. And I loved, loved covering Zell. And then Roy Barnes, because he's brilliant, because he's hilarious, because he had vision for the state and he had the courage which maybe was one of the reasons he lost the job, to change the state flag. Those two were exceptional. Did you cover that state flag issue? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, we got the call at like 8.30 in the morning from Bobby Kahn, who was his chief of staff. And I wasn't the only one who got it, all of us who covered the Capitol. I was at the Capitol. And Bobby called and said, you better be on the lookout because in about an hour, uh, they're going to drop a, a bill to change the state flag. It's going to be the biggest day in Georgia political history. Um, so, yeah, it was an incredible story. Yeah. Um, well, listen, I think it'd be a good time for the second break. Oh, but you're would you in, like to it do is that? your show. Well, so go ahead. If you want to screw no, no, up my go whole ahead. plan, do what you want. why don't we take a break okay. at this point and we're going to come back and I'm going to um, ask you to talk about some personal stuff oh, uh, after geez. that. Oh, so, my God. So we'll, Maybe we better not come back. No, no. We'll be back and you'll get to hear. <laughs> you, we'll, we'll, we'll dig deep into the soul oh. of Bill Nygut. We are back on Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, and I've uh, commandeered the show from Bill today. Because well, you've this been is substitute host. Show. Yeah. You're pretty good at it. Uh, Bill's final show, and he's facing the questions for me. So, all right, I've done a lot of work, research, preparing for this <laughs> yeah. and dug into some things. So there's no smooth way for me to kind of make this transition except to say I think I want to ask you a lot of personal stuff okay. because I think people need to know the kind of person you are and the person I've gotten to know mm. over these over over these past five, six years. So I'm going to start here. Okay. Uh, when you met your current wife, she said... Wait, wait, wait. We've been together 30 years, <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> but, but she said, in fact, she insisted that she would be the one to propose. Yeah. Why? Why is why was that? Well, because Janice is a strong, independent woman, which is one of the things I love most about her. And because we had both gone through some really tough times in relationships, and um, although we fell in love pretty quickly when we after we met, um, she just made it clear to me. I mean, if we're heading in that direction, if you ask me. It, isn't going to happen. You better wait for me to ask you, which is what happened. Uh, we were at the 99X. Many of you out there are old enough to remember when 99X was the radio station. Chinese New Year's concert at the Fox Theater. And Janice turned to me and said, will you marry me? And I said, I would. Of course I will. Um, so in a life of good decisions, that one stands out as maybe the best? It's it. She, you know the Paul Simon song? Um, uh, where he says, um, you've got the cool waters when the fever runs high. You got the look of love light in your eye. I was in crazy motion until you calmed me down. And that's what Janice did for me. Okay. And she's here. She's sitting on the other side of the glass. And so were your, your, uh, your two uh, children. So yeah. talk about them. I know how much they mean to you. Um. <laughs> you know, Bill is my older. Um, he, t I tell him this story every birthday, and I know he's sick of hearing it. But um, you know, my life had been up and down for a very long time. I was not—I was forty-three when uh, Bill came along. I didn't know that I was ever going to have children. And I've said to Bill every birthday, I didn't really know what it meant to be in love until you were born. And that's true. So he's. Along with Janice, those two things have been exceptional. Emma is like a gift from God. I mean, Emma is, she's got her mother's um, uh, 
curiosity, creativity, empathy, uh, the quality of giving. She's carving out, um, Bill's got a wonderful career in the coffee business. He's taught me everything I know about really good coffee. Emma has carved out a career in the entertainment business. She was part of a huge hit off-Broadway show that you've heard me talk about personally way too often. We just came back from New York where the show was um, filmed for a, a streaming platform that I'm not allowed to mention, until, but it'll be on this fall. Uh, she's, I, Emma in some ways is living that theater life that I thought I was going to have, but I don't resent it. I'm thrilled by it, and she's also just a wonderful human being. Yeah, well, you're right about I've I've gotten to know all three of them, and it's been it's been just just great, uh, and it's so wonderful to see them here and yeah. see them oh, yeah. wiping their eyes on the other side of the glass. So, <laughs> um, all right, so let's get to know Bill Nigan a little bit better, and I'm going to make some of my own judgments and statements here. But one thing that I want people listening to know about you because people love the show. And people love being on the show. People love listening to the show. People are distraught about the show, you know, being canceled. There's a reason the show has been so good. And it's your work ethic. How do you do that? I will get text messages from you at five in the morning because you've been at work for a while. Um, or I, the night before the show, I will get a list of, you know, seven or eight articles you want me to read. What do you attribute that? that uh, that too well i want the show to be wonderful i want the show to be smart i want you all to have everything you need at your disposal to have a smart thoughtful meaningful analysis about the issues we're discussing um and so that requires a lot of research i mean i'm up at four i read four newspapers i look at the what i think of as the key political websites um, it's, it is, it's demanding, but that's not the key to why political rewind is so good, Kevin. And I do think it's good, despite the fact that, you know, my motto in life is fooled him again. Um, it's good because of who, when this show first went on the air, uh, my boss at the time said to me, why is it when you introduce the panelists, you talk so much about their personal, why do you ask them all these questions about how they're doing today and, gee, didn't they just come back from this or vacation or whatever? And I said, because I want this to feel like a family of people sitting and talking to each other. I want listeners to get to know them as people, not just as totems of opinion or analysis. And to me, that's the real success of Political Rewind. We know all of you. Our listeners know all of you in a much more personal way. You've gotten to know each other in a much more personal way. And I think our listeners and the extraordinary response to losing the show, it reveals that. They feel like this has been their show and they're as much a part of it as you are. Yeah, I'm about to pay Bill a big compliment here. Uh, and I want I, one thing I'm going to say, I just I, I want this to be a pleasant interview, but I just have to be clear. You suck at receiving compliments. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm all the time would call him after a show and say, hey, really great job. Love the way he handled it. He'd, he'd just move on to some other topic. But in front of him, as we sit here, he has a book. Of, uh, and you want to tell tell people what the book is? Well, yeah. you know, you people know that we uh, we do the show on Zoom, and we know that you are all able to see each other. I'm able to see you because we're on Zoom, 
Um, and that's just important for cues. I, I can get a better sense of when you're about to finish what you want to say and move on. And we have cards that we hold up. If you are talking and Eric Tannenblatt wants to go next, I hold up, he waves at me and I hold up Eric's card. And this is a book of all of the cards, these three by five index cards of the people, there are 60 of them in here who have been panelists on the show over the years and people who have come in many cases to truly love they love you. They love the show. They love each other. <laughs> well, sometimes. Um, so I don't know. You know, uh, um, I just. So can I say a few things? Or you, uh, you know, that's what we're doing here. We're no, I know. Talk, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to interrupt your, your questions, but but I really believe that when I open we. Natalie and Chase, you know, send out a, a, the link every day for wh which Zoom link you're going to use to get on the show. And and they're very clear. Please join at 845 so we can work out any audio problems that we might have. And those 10, 12, 15 minutes that we all get to talk to each other just as friends, as people, I realize how important everybody has become to me Um because you have been so generous in giving your time, you've been so smart in what you've had to say, and I've said it on the air before, I feel this enormous privilege that I get to listen to what you have to say and help, I hope, make you even better by the way I shine a spotlight on, on you all. Yeah, and I, I have to just add a little something here. So as as you've joked with me, I've 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 had a round of retirement uh, celebrations. <laughs> I I say three or four too many, but but why would yeah. I say that? <laughs> yeah, I think people were so glad to see me go, they couldn't quit gathering to see me off, right? But there there are people who I only met through Zoom on this show yeah. who came because we feel like we're friends, we know each other, we want to yeah. stay in touch, yeah. all of that, and you did that. You created a community of people who care about Georgia, politics. Yeah, it happened on your show, but the reason I believe that the show is so powerful is these are people who live here, they're invested here, they care yeah. about the political leadership of our state doing the right things. Yeah, and you know, we changed. Um, when the show first went on the air, I thought it was always going to be a Republican legislator or a Democratic legislator, Republican consultant, Democratic consultant, whatever, pollsters on either side of the aisle. And I realized at a certain point that was not the right approach because although there were a lot of smart people, in many ways they were talking past each other because they each had very strong points of view. When we transitioned and said, as much as we like so many of those people, a Brian Robinson, a Theron Johnson, I love those guys. Um, um, it, it was better when we started having political science professors, journalists from around the state, historians who were a step removed, but who brought to the show their brilliant thinking about the politics that they taught or they covered in their communities. And I think that changed the show for the better, although there are still some partisans I love having on. Mm -hmm. Edward Lindsay, Eric Tannenblatt, Republicans, Sam Olins, Republicans. Would you believe it? You know, people sometimes say, you're having Republicans on the show? This is NPR. And I'd say, of course we are, because these are really smart people. I could name lots of them, lots of Democrats as well. Yeah. So um, you talked about early in your career, the sharp elbows. You, you, you've used that phrase several times. Um, 
But I see before me a master conversationalist, a good questioner, a committed journalist, a loving father, and a great friend. Thank you. How Thank did you. you? How did you? This guy I see today doesn't sound like that guy I, I, that you I, described. I, that's what my son's birth and my meeting Janice Schaefer did to me. It changed me entirely. I I used to be so competitive, Kevin. You've worked with lots of really competitive journalists in your career. Yeah. I was furiously competitive when I was at Channel 2. And it made me unlikable for good reason. Uh, and I'm still a fairly competitive guy. You know, I'm thinking about the next steps for this show, for instance, and I'm thinking about, well, I want to get out there and continue making this show really wonderful, and I think we're going to have that chance pretty soon. Um, but I also realized that what I want more than anything else is to be a journalist who has heart, who cares about the people, the issues about the listener. I Today, for instance, right? So the Supreme Court makes this decision about affirmative action in uh college admissions. Um, I wish we had a chance to talk about that because I want to help explain to our listeners why that's so important. It's a complicated subject. I want panelists who can walk us through that. And I want them to do it with a certain kind of intelligence, but also a compassion about what that means to human beings, to real people. That's the secret to what makes Political Rewind successful. And I can say as someone who's been a panelist, when you show up for the show, you better be able to do that. You better be able to get past the surface. You better be able to get past talking points. You better yeah. have, be prepared to have some insight. So we're running out of time, and I want to uh, turn the last few minutes over to you, but I'm going to say this because I want people to hear how I feel about you. Congratulations <laughs> on what you've accomplished with this show. You've shaped the course of the state and the city. You've done it with passion and with high ethical standards. Georgia thanks you. And now I want you to have the final words here in the final few minutes. Well, first of all, Kevin, there is no one I would rather have had here today for this final show. I mean, we've known each other for a long time, but in the last few years, the pandemic, uh, our friendship has really deepened. And so not only have I always admired you as a journalist and a great leader, but you've become a really close friend. You, our friend Mark Rosenberg, and I uh, have become so close um, Mark, a great public health leader who's been on this show. Um, so thank you. Um, there is a future for our show, I'm glad to say. We're not quite ready to announce what it is, but I think within a couple weeks we will be able to do that. I'm uh, keeping all of the incredible emails that I've gotten from you out there who listen to the show. I can't even tell you how much they've meant to me. And I've got them all sitting. I haven't been able to respond to every one of them so far because they're literally hundreds. But I'm hoping that as I get a chance to relax, I will have a chance to thank you at, in an email back to you. But I'll also let you know where we're headed next. Um, so I, I, the only thing I can say in closing is I, cr I was asked to create this show by Taya Ryan almost 10 years ago. We went on the air in July of 2014, one day a week. Listeners out there, you have said you wanted more so that we became a weekday show five days a week. And you out there have been unbelievably important to me. Sometimes you get mad at me, I get it. You send me notes saying, how could you have said this or that? 
But in the long run, what you've said is that political rewind really matters to you. And, and here's why that's special to me, because I really do sometimes think, am I, I don't know if I'm doing a good job or not, but you all have told me I have been doing a good job and I have made the show worth listening to. And for me, I can't ask for anything more than that. Chase is saying it's time to get out. Chase, Natalie, Victoria, Buddha, we'll see each other again. And all of you out there, you too. Bye-bye.